So, Tyler, how would you describe an alcoholic? Well, kind of a, a test that I do is, hey, look over there. You see those four trees over there? Well, an alcoholic would see eight. Tyler, there are only two trees. Welcome back to Sick Enough. Welcome back to Sick Enough, the show about patients who are sick enough to be in a hospital and the doctors and nurses who are sick enough to work there. I'm Tyler. And I'm Dave. And today we're going to be talking about liver disease and cirrhosis. A quick disclaimer before we jump into it. This show is not official medical advice. If you're having an emergency or a concern you might be having an emergency, you should not be listening to the show. You should stop this recording and you should call 911 immediately. We are doctors, but we are not your doctor. Furthermore, we are not trained or authorized to comment on pediatric care, and this is in the vein of adults only. So moving into today's episode, we're going to talk about liver failure and cirrhosis. In a prior episode, we discussed the entire GI tract, and we did kind of do a little tangent onto the liver is kind of almost like its own special organ. We put it into the GI tract because it has a lot of Mm -hmm. gastrointestinal functions, a lot of enzymatic digestion, a lot of things that helps with that. But there's a lot of other things the liver does with the body, too. Cirrhosis is the medical term for end-stage liver disease when the the liver is gone. The most common causes of cirrhosis in America are alcohol abuse, alcoholics, hepatitis, like hepatitis C. Hepatitis C and B are the chronic ones that can lead Mm -hmm. to cirrhosis. And there's also a disease called NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is just bad luck. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you did. It's not your fault. Your liver just fills with fatty deposits. As if you have any of these diseases, the liver starts to lose its ability to, to function. And mm-hmm. by function, I mean it makes blood cells, it helps with digestion, it helps make proteins, it helps with fluid balance. As we progress and progress through our liver disease, we lose those functions step by step. Eventually, we get to a point called cirrhosis, which is yeah. end-stage liver disease. So, you know, the liver has a pretty amazing regenerative capacity. And when they do liver transplants, they'll take out a half a liver from a healthy person and transplant it into a person who does not have a functioning liver. And both livers will basically regrow into full livers. It's really a pretty amazing organ. The problem is that with enough injury or with chronic sort of injury, like you see with like with Nash, for instance, or with alcohol, the the liver never has a chance to really recover and to fully sort of regrow and and regenerate. And in those conditions, it loses its ability to regenerate. And that's when that's when chronic liver disease develops and what we and what Tyler's talking about, which is cirrhosis, which is where it's kind of the end stage of chronic liver disease. Yeah. Managing a liver patient is always a challenge. When I was a med student, someone told me there's two types of patients. Well, there's two types of medical patients, the liver patients and then the non-liver patients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I don't completely agree with that statement, but I see what they were talking about. When I've got a patient on my list who has cirrhosis, end-stage liver disease, you know, some of the things that I just take for granted, like I know in most patients I can fix their electrolytes, no problem, and I can mm-hmm. fix their fluids, no problem, and I can treat their infections, no problem. But then when I have a cirrhotic patient on my list, even the basics become a challenge. And yeah. I, I find myself frequently needing to consult a gastroenterologist or at my current hospital, a hepatologist, who is a liver specialist. Mm-hmm. Hepatologists don't grow on trees. You don't. You won't see hepatologists at a lot of smaller hospitals. Mm-hmm. I think the field is growing, and over the next 20 years, we might see them expand a little bit. But including my residency, I've worked at four hospitals, and only one has hepatology, the one I currently mm-hmm. work at. So just I was going to say, I was going to say, I, I would... 
the liver is one of those organs that is just essential for life. And yeah. it's not like your spleen where you can get it taken out and you'll be okay. If your liver is not functioning, you are not going to be able to function normally like like you or like everybody else would. So topic for debate here. You know, we all know about when someone when someone's kidneys go out, mm-hmm. we have this machine called dialysis, right? Mm-hmm. And they go to the dialysis center and three times a week they plug into the machine and the dialysis machine cleans their blood in the way mm-hmm. that their kidneys were supposed to. Have you ever wondered why we don't have that for cirrhosis yet? Like, I, I mean, I'm no scientist here. This is way past think, my level of understanding. I mean, I think that it would be difficult to do because you think about all the different functions we could maybe have something that removed some of the toxins. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do for kidney dialysis. That's what we do for kidney dialysis. But I guess I just, I would have to ask someone who has more medical you pharmaceutical. Know, the albumin, we, you know, we would have to give albumin, but I think the albumin that we give, you know, when we're giving a patient albumin to help uh, a problem, that albumin doesn't remain in their circulation for very long. It's yeah. not, it's not the same as albumin, just like the liver would make, you know, it's, it's, uh, but just, I've, it's I've, not as good. And clotting factors, we'd have to give donor plasma. I think yeah. that's probably the big part is that in order in order to do something like that, we would have to have a number of donors supporting that whole industry, people donating plasma, donating all the other f- things and factors that you would need. Yeah. You know, I've just whimsically thought about that sometimes. Like everyone, we just take kidney dialysis for granted and I've never heard and, anyone talk about research for liver dialysis. Well, so. and you think about it, you know, kidney dialysis is kind of a controversial topic in its own way. And it's probably beyond what we want to get into today. Right, but, sure. you know, it was originally developed as a way to kind of bridge people to transplant. But now yeah. there are people who are on it for life. Yeah. Which is definitely not how that was intended. And that's that's definitely a topic of controversy in medicine right now. Sure. But anyway, going back to the the causes of uh, liver failure, I just mentioned in America, the most common ones are alcoholism, viral hepatitis, which is hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and the NASH, non-alcoholic state of hepatitis cirrhosis. Mm-hmm. Cancer can do it too. Hepatocellular carcinoma is primary liver cancer. Um, there's also, if someone's got metastatic cancer, for example, colon cancer loves to go to the liver. So we'll mm-hmm. frequently see patients with metastatic colon cancer, which has metastasized to the liver, and now they have cirrhosis. I've seen that as well, too. Mm-hmm. Then we start to get into the the board exam study guide here. These are conditions we read about in medical mm-hmm. school but rarely see in practice, like primary biliary cirrhosis, primary sclerosing, sclerosing cholangitis, autoimmune hepatitis, polycystic disease, um, hemochromatosis, Wilson's disease. Mm-hmm. These are all conditions which can torch your liver. It's not something I see once a month. Yeah. So hemochromatosis is like iron overload for the liver. And yeah. there are some people, it's a genetic condition. Some people are just more prone to hanging on to iron. And if you are somebody who has hemochromatosis, you retain so much iron that it becomes toxic to your liver. Yeah. Um, and then Wilson's is kind of the same idea, but I think it's with copper. Copper. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we mentioned a couple of times the liver does a lot of things. Not it does. It has some GI functions and it has some extra GI functions as well. I've just kind of listed a few of them here. It helps secrete enzymes for digestion. Mm-hmm. It also the liver secretes a couple different proteins and platelets, which help control bleeding. Um, the liver can help make platelets, and the mm-hmm. liver can help make clotting factors. And when you lose both of those, the liver patients tend to bleed a lot. Another problem is varices. In our prior episode, we talked about mm-hmm. GI bleeds. A potentially fatal or, as Dave mentioned, one of the scarier kinds of GI bleeds is a, an esophageal varicy rupture. 
basically as the liver loses its ability to filter fluids, we it creates a, a congestive backup in the esophagus mm-hmm. and some of the veins and arteries around there. And that can show up as blood vessels bulging in through the esophagus. That's enough mm-hmm. esophageal varices. When those bleed, you can die. You yeah. can die tonight. Like if one of those you ruptures. You die very quickly. Yeah. And so yeah. That, that's a, another complication of liver failure. I kind of mentioned portal hypertension. That's the medical term for mm-hmm. when the liver loses its ability to filter fluid. We got a lot of hepatic congestion, a lot of fluid buildup, and it just creates mm-hmm. high blood pressure in the portal system. Portal meaning, of course, liver circulation. Mm-hmm. As we lose our ability to manage fluids, we see electrolyte abnormalities. Liver patients tend to come in with low sodium a lot. Mm-hmm. Hyponatremia is the medical term for low sodium. It can be very frustrating too because they will their bodies will behave as if they're dehydrated, but they're drowning in fluid. Like there's yeah. there's fluid built up in the lungs, fluid built up in the abdomen, in their skin, in the yeah under the skin, in the ankles. It's and it, part of that's because of some high pressures in the abdomen. Part of that's because of not having enough albumin in the bloodstream to hold fluid where it's supposed to be. And so it's very frustrating though, because these patients will, if you were to just look at their lab values or look at their vitals, you would think that they were dehydrated, but then you go and see them and they're, you know, they look like a water balloon. Yeah. They look like a big water and half the time they're leaking fluid through the skin. Yeah. So there are other enzymes that are more used for digestion, but like uh, bilirubin. And when the liver can't filter those, we see what's called hyperbilirubinemia, which just means jaundice. high bilirubin. Yeah. yeah. And then when that number gets high, we see jaundice. And that's yeah. where your skin turns yellow and your eyes turn yellow. That's how you can recognize someone with liver failure at the checkout line of, of the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're completely yellow, they look like someone covered in a highlighter marker. They've probably got some liver failure. Yeah. So I've always thought that was one of the more interesting things about liver disease is it creates so many different physical findings yeah. that you and I are kind of trained to recognize that the average person might not. And, but I think that, you know, there are times I've walked into a room and, you know, seen a patient and gone, this person's got liver disease. I yeah. don't know what their, I don't yeah. know what their liver function tests look like. I don't know what the ultrasound is going to show, but this person's cirrhotic and sure enough, we're right. Another uh, enzyme or I guess, I don't know how you call it, ammonia. Is ammonia an enzyme? No, I mean, it's I just a chemical. I would call it a toxin. By, yeah. Another so. toxin that is constantly throughout the body as a normal part of metabolism is called ammonia. The liver's job is to filter it out. As we lose the liver, ammonia builds up. And as mm-hmm. ammonia gets to dangerously high levels, it can create confusion or what's called hepatic encephalopathy. Mm-hmm. We take medications to help get the ammonia levels down. A lot of these medications are laxatives because we poop out the ammonia. Mm-hmm. There are also a lot of the bacteria in your GI tract that are ordinarily helpful will produce a lot of toxins sort of as a byproduct. And typically it's not a big deal. Your liver filters them out, you know, and gets rid of them and that's it. But when the liver stops being able to do that, it no longer can filter those toxins like ammonia and ammonia is just one of them. And so unfortunately that's what the laxatives are a lot of times are to keep you, keep those keep those things moving in your system so you're not absorbing those those toxins. Yeah. So, And since we mentioned bacterial translocation, liver patients can also be susceptible to what's called SBP, mm-hmm. which stands for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. The word spontaneous means it just kind of comes on its own. Mm-hmm. Bacterial, of course, means infection. Basically, an infection just shows up in their abdomen yeah. spontaneously. Well, and you think about it, they've got a bunch of a bunch of fluid floating around in the ab- in the kind of freely in the abdomen 
and there's not you know there aren't blood vessels coursing through it where to make white make it easy access for white blood cells yeah so it's sort of like unpoliced area and when bacteria gets into it they can proliferate and thrive and yeah not have any sort of challenge from you know any significant challenge at least from the immune system so i'm frequently giving my liver patients uh antibiotics to treat gut bacteria like recepin yeah. is a very common one renal failure this one is a bad one called hepatorenal yeah. syndrome Sometimes we'll see patients who we know they have cirrhosis, we know they're a liver patient, and then they start to come in to the hospital frequently, and we notice their kidney numbers are slowly losing us too. Yeah. Of course, after we rule out all the other causes of kidney injury, as discussed several episodes ago, yeah. if we can't find anything of that that sticks, we say it's probably the liver has shut down to the point where it can't effectively perfuse the kidneys downstream, mm-hmm. and we call it hepatorenal syndrome. That's a yeah. pretty bad diagnosis. That's kind of end of the road, sort of. Yeah. And they generally don't transplant patients once they've reached hepatorenal syndrome. It's a, uh, yeah, it's um Cause generally that means they're going to have to do not just a liver, but also a kidney transplant. And yeah. that's a lot harder to get. You don't want hepatorenal syndrome showing up in your medical chart. That yeah. means you probably don't have a lot of time left. Yeah. So moving on here after this laundry list of ways that liver patients can be a challenge to manage and a challenge just to live. If you are a liver patient, mm-hmm. I guess something you might be asking is, is, you know, how severe is a cirrhosis? Like how bad is it? We've come up with this grading system called a MELD score, M-E-L-D. Mm-hmm. We look at the bilirubin level, the sodium level, and their clotting factors, and we put it mm-hmm. into a calculator. I think creatinine too. Is there creatinine? I don't know. I don't, I, like if I you know, honestly, I should have, I should have Googled that for this episode. But anyway, <laughs> we can Google MELD score and, and that'll show yeah. you. It, it's very it's, simple. It's a, it's a count. Cal- there's a complex calculation that's done. I usually go online and use a special calculator to, yeah. to do it. But it, it's not, it's not rocket science. You just go to the yeah. WebMD and, or sorry, you go to MD Calc and put in some numbers yeah. and it tells you your med score. I don't know that WebMD has the yeah <laughs> has the meld calculator. The lowest score you can get is six, and that's good. You want a low yeah, score. You want a low score. The highest possible score is forty, so it's a grade from six to forty. Mm-hmm. The higher you get, the higher your meld score. The worse off you are, but then we start to talk about whether or not are you a transplant candidate. Yeah. Just for a frame of reference, if your meld score is above thirty, so you know thirty to forty. Mm-hmm. We estimate that you've got about a 40% chance to last six months and a 33% chance to last 24 months. So yeah. if, you're, if your MELD score is over 30, we don't think you're going to make it. We don't necessarily think you've got two yeah. years left. So then if someone's MELD score is greater than 30 and their, their cirrhosis is advanced, we start to wonder if they're a transplant candidate. Mm-hmm. So first we look at, I don't know of any causes of liver failure that are contraindications, but I do know there are other things about you which make you, may make you not a cancer candidate. I would say alcohol is... That's, yeah. A lot of times if you're someone, if your liver failure is from alcohol and you are still drinking, you're not going to be a transplant candidate. I think they want you documented sober for six months before they'll consider you At a least, transplant candidate. Yeah. yeah. And, and that varies between transplant programs. So, right. you know, you go to a transplant program in the eastern part of the country, they may have different rules or different policies compared to in the Midwest or in the, you know, on yeah. the West Coast. So because these, I mean, these these liver donors, they don't grow on trees either. Yeah. And they don't want to put a new liver into someone who they know is just going to go right to the liquor store and drink the, drink that one well, away. They generally want the, the transplant organ to have the longest lifespan it possibly can, right. which generally means they want to match that organ with the healthiest patient who also has the healthiest lifestyle. And yeah. And that's tricky because none of the liver patients are very healthy when they 
are being right worked up for transplant. So I know if someone's got metastatic cancer, they're not going to be a transplant candidate too. Yeah. For a similar reason, to what you just said, they want that liver to go and help someone thrive. Yeah. If someone's got metastatic lung cancer with a six month ex- estimated time mm-hmm. anyway, I don't think they're going to get a a liver a new liver put in them. Their surgical candidacy is another reason too. If someone's already had seven heart attacks. Yeah. And the liver transplant surgery is a big surgery. I don't think they yeah, want to take that. If you couldn't survive, you know, if you couldn't survive your gallbladder taken out, yeah. you're not going to survive having the liver taken out and a new one put in. What are some other contraindications to getting a transplant that you can think of? Smoking. Smoking. Yeah. I read that I didn't know this until I was reading to make this episode, but um HIV is no longer a contraindication. Yeah. I, I think, thought it was until I was reading this. It's not. I don't think so. The, I mean, really, they. I think they'll assess just about anybody. It's really just they want to put the liver into somebody who's going to have the best, yeah. the best chance of having some longevity, and they want to give that liver the, the longest lifespan that it can. They want it to do the most good, and yeah. and there have been tons and tons of ethical debates about this topic because how do you justify what's the most good? And that's not that's never an easy an easy question. But typically, there's a transplant list, and people are sort of prioritized on that list. And some people get to jump the line if their need is really high. And I know we've had a couple of patients who came into the hospital with sort of fulminant, meaning sudden liver failure, and they got to jump ahead of some of the people who had more chronic liver failure. You um, see that in Tylenol toxicity a lot. Yeah. I, that's one that I almost, that I sort of question. And so what Tyler's talking about is that if you take too much Tylenol, it can cause liver toxicity. And it's a really sad situation because there are a lot of patients who will take a Tylenol overdose thinking that it's safe and it's not, it's deadly. And they'll think they'll take a Tylenol overdose as a suicidal gesture. And maybe they did intend to commit suicide. Maybe they were just trying to get the attention of their loved ones to, you know, to share that they were hurting. But we've both seen patients who probably did not intend to take their lives who ultimately wound up taking their lives anyway. And all because they took too much Tylenol and it's a horrible, horrible way to die. It is definitely not, not that there's any good way to commit suicide, but a Tylenol overdose is a horrible way and it's, it's tough to watch. So, so how do we, other than transplant, like what are some medications? What can we do for liver failure? Well, the easiest and simple ones, they're frequently on diuretics to help their body get rid of some of that excess fluid. Most of the treatments are supportive and they're really just meant to minimize your symptoms until you can get transplanted or yeah. until something else kind of comes up. But sometimes we'll do like lactulose or zyfaction. That's mm-hmm. for if your ammonia levels are too high and you're constantly confused. Lactulose is like an industrial laxative. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I give lactulose for people who are constipated. Yeah. It happens to be indicated for liver patients, but I mean, yeah, you, know, I can you can use it. it for plenty of other right. stuff. So sometimes um, they, they can even use it to bring down potassium levels too. So it's not the preferred thing these days, but in the old days it used to be used for that. Sometimes we'll see them on a medication called mitodrine, which is responsible mm-hmm. for bringing the blood pressure up, which kind of can prevent or treat that hepatorenal syndrome we talked about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes on antibiotics. There's another procedure called a TIPS, trans, man, I didn't research very well. We'll just call it TIPS, <laughs> T-I-P-S. It's a, it's a minor procedure where, where they go and they put a stent and they relieve some of the fluid pressure off the, uh, the portal system, which kind of help. It's like putting a bypass around it. So. Yeah. It basically gives that fluid another a way to get around the liver so there's not a traffic jam there as much anymore. But the problem is that that fluid doesn't get filtered by the liver. Right. 
So I know it, it, it solves some problem and creates some others. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's all I have for, um, for liver failure and cirrhosis. Um, Dave, anything else you wanted to add? Uh, the big thing I would just add is that your liver is an organ that you cannot live without. And we should all do everything we can to take good care of them. I think that means limiting your alcohol intake to safe quantities for men. Try and avoid drinking um, more than 14 alcoholic beverages in a week. I Ideally, you want to have... Hey. Well, per day, you would, I would say no 14 more, a day? Oh my gosh. <laughs> no more than two per day uh, on average and yeah. no more than four in any one kind of sitting. Yeah. And for women, it's about half that. So for yeah. women, no more than seven drink alcoholic beverages per week, which averages out to maybe one or two per day. I know these numbers seem like not that much, but that's, that's really beyond that. You could cause liver damage. And, and you'd mentioned earlier about NASH and how some people... It's just kind of luck of the draw. I think some people also get Nash because of poor dietary choices. And I think we it see it a be. lot in some in some patients with obesity. And so I think just taking taking good care of yourself, you know, exercising, trying to stay at a healthy weight and minimizing your alcohol intake. These are going to be the things that keep your, your liver healthy. Yeah. And then getting immunized for hepatitis B and doing yeah. your best to avoid hep B and hep C, which are both bloodborne diseases you can get from... Um, Hep C sharing, tends to come from bad decisions. Yeah, yeah, you can get these from sharing needles or having uh, having sexual contact with someone who's infected. So um, I think just making smart decisions will help protect your liver in the long run, at least as best you can. So yep. I'd recommend those things. Well, thanks for listening. If you'd like to like or subscribe to our podcast on your preferred mode, uh, we'll go ahead and add some new lists. Or, excuse me, add some new episodes every week. If you'd like to email us, we, uh, we're at sickenoughpodcast, S-I-C-K-E-N-O-U-G-H-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. We've got a couple hundred emails to sort through at this point, so we might not <laughs> reply right away. Um, but if we'd like to do some uh, listener-based feedback. If you have any questions, don't yeah. send a, hesitate to send some emails. We'd love to do a Q&A episode, yeah. and, and we'd also love to do, uh, if there are topics that you want to hear about, let us know. I'd like to thank Swede Custom Studios and Two Birds Artwork for uh, giving us the thumbnail on our website. I'd like to thank Michael Cobran and Pixabay.com for our intro music. And I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Alex. And I'd like to thank our listeners. All right, guys. See you next time.